The title of this message today is Called to Suffer, and then in parentheses, for a while. And we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 2, but I want to have you turn quite a few places by way of introduction before we get to Psalm chapter 2. And so I just want to encourage you, we're going to look at a lot of things today. I really ask for you to, to pray as you're moving through this study of what the Lord specifically would say to you. I came to my study kind of thinking about, do I need to do something special because of all that's gone on this week with Russia invading the Ukraine and kind of thinking about end times? And and I came to this passage, and as I began to study, it was clear to me that this is where the Lord wanted me to be, was in this passage. So I want to ask you to begin by turning to 1 Peter chapter 2. So would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at this first idea that as believers, we're called to suffer. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. All right, so Peter here, he's writing to servants, right? To, so to people who are slaves, um, but really this is a calling to all of us. That we're, we're all serving somewhere, and so how we're to interact with our masters and kind of some fruit out of that. Notice, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief. Notice, suffering wrongfully. That as believers, we're going to be in situations, we're going to be called to this, to this suffering wrongfully. That people are going to treat us, the circumstances, situations, individuals. And then notice verse 20, he says, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And notice verse 21, For to this you were called. It's radical. The fact that as believers, we are called to suffer unrighteously. That we're called to suffer in, in situations that are not of our making, that is not our sin. But, but the, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't shy away from this idea. You're called to this. You're called to this difficult situation. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The Lord Jesus suffered wrongfully. He, he suffered for our sins. He took upon himself what we deserve. And so our life, what we're called to is a, a life of suffering because we're called to be like Christ. He says, who committed no sin, but was, nor was deceit found in his mouth. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So radical thing, called to suffer. Okay, so we have that in mind. Let's turn now to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11, because here's our good news that it's for a while. This suffering is for a while. So 1 Peter 5 Now looking at verses 5 through 11. Peter writes, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Get off my porch. No, you, you, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. So in the midst of suffering, difficulty, hardship, in the midst of being subjugated, what are you to do? What am I to do? We're to cast all of our care, not part of our care, not, a, not you know, the majority of our care, all of your care upon him. Why? Because he's the one who cares for you. And then he says, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is, this is new covenant truth. This is not something that got changed when Jesus died on the cross. This is something post-Jesus died on the cross, post-resurrection. This is the life of the believer, that you have a very real enemy who is stalking you, who is putting pieces together on planet Earth, on the world stage, seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's, that's the reality of it. This world is not heaven. It's not going to be. So we have to be sober and be vigilant because he's looking to devour us. Now notice verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing, notice, that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That there's suffering all throughout. But may the God of all grace, here it is, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. I'd encourage you to underline that, to highlight it, to box it. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is the reality. So this is the truth. These are the things that we see from the scripture that this is the calling, whether we like it or not, of each and every believer, that each and every believer is called to suffer in some way. Now, there are believers in the Ukraine today who are suffering in an unimaginable way, but they're not the first on the scene. There are you know, believers who have suffered in the Sudan and believers who are suffering in China and believers who are suffering in India and believers who are suffering in the United States. This is part of the deal. This is the reality of the situation. And it's a varying degree of suffering, a varying degree of length of time and severity of the suffering, depending on the individual, depending on God's plan. But the thing we have to remember is that all of this suffering is for a while. It's not for always. It's for a while. All right. So before we turn to Psalm 22, though, there's another place I want you to turn, and that's in your Old Testament to Isaiah 53. I want to have you turn to Isaiah 53. I want to move quickly through Isaiah 53 just by way of reminder. But Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are closely linked together. They're closely linked together because they're both these uh, incredibly influential, instrumental, instructive Old Testament prophecies of the suffering of our Savior. And so I believe by reminding ourselves of Isaiah 53, it'll help us to come to grips with what we have in Psalm 22. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and he, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous Savior, I'm sorry, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he made the intercession for the transgressors. And so we see here this, that Jesus' suffering as intense as it was on the cross, it was finished. He suffered for a while and then he brought these things to pass, our salvation, the redemption of fallen people. So these amazing things, as we kind of think about this, as we turn our attention now to Psalm 22, would you turn there? I want to remind you of these two primary, I would say, um, not, not schools of thought is not the right word, but uh, these streams of prophecy that we find in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. There were the suffering Savior prophecies such as Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, uh, but there are also many conquering king prophecies of the Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, the Messiah coming back and, you know, establishing his millennial reign and doing all these sort of things. And so as we think about that, we must concern ourselves with both. This is not an either or. The Lord Jesus isn't either a suffering savior or a conquering king. This is a both and. He's both a suffering Savior and a conquering King. Now, he has fulfilled his suffering Savior prophecies. He has done that. He's completed that work of humiliation. But now he's waiting till his father puts all of his enemies under his feet so that he might return and rule the nations with a rod of iron like we're told about in Psalm chapter 2. And so as we begin to put these pieces together and think about these things, there's an application for you and I as believers. You see, our life on earth is going to be suffering for our Savior, but our life after death is going to be reigning with our King. So those same things that we see in our Savior relate to us. Just as he was a suffering Savior here on earth, so we suffer for our Savior here on earth. And just as now he's a reigning King, so life after death, we're going to reign with our King. So it's important for us to understand that. Now, as I'm saying these things to you, you know, there, there may be a tendency, it's a natural human tendency to say, well, Steve, you're telling me all of these high truths. I don't always see you live these things out, Steve. I don't see you always kind of embracing suffering like you're calling me to. There's something that I heard about this week and other people have heard about it before. It's something called the imposter syndrome. You know, where, where you go and you get a new job 
and you don't know how to do that job yet, but you're trying to act like you know how to do it so you can try to make it through and you kind of feel like an imposter, I'll just be honest with you. I, I've, I felt every time I come to the pulpit as an imposter because God has called me to speak these absolute truths, but as I teach them, as I share them, I know how much of this do I actually live out? Very little. So I, I would ask you today to see past me. I would ask you to say the living God who wants to speak to you through his word, through all my faults and failures, through all the things that I do wrong, all the ways I don't live up to the truth that I proclaim to you. I would ask you to see God today. I would ask you to hear from him and to know and just just set it aside. Steve's an imposter. I know that. Steve doesn't live out these things that he teaches me because he's a sinner just like me. But I know that God tells the truth. And I know that God tells the truth through his word. And I know that God uses broken vessels to reveal himself so that he might show himself strong through those who are weak. So with that said, we're going to look at here and think about both of these things. We're going to see this suffering Savior as we move through the first part of Psalm 22, but there's going to be good news. We're going to have an, an element, a sight of the conquering king as we move to the end. Now, so that's going to, I'm not going to read all this up front. We're going to get it as we go because we have a lot to cover. Psalm 22, we read the title to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a Psalm of David. We don't know the tune, but apparently the Deer of the Dawn was some cool song <laughs> back in the day uh, that it was set to. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Now, as we begin to move through this psalm, there's a few different ways to apply it in our lives. We can apply it and think about David. Right? We can think about this in relation to David because David's the one writing these things and David is writing about some things in his life. And so he's kind of the, the lesser way to interpret this. But then the greater way to interpret Psalm 22 is actually it's prophetic of Jesus Christ. So it's David and what he has to say about it is Jesus, what he has to say about it. But, you know, it's also to us to apply this to our life, the, the, the suffering that we're going to do for our Savior here then I, I hope that this is not merely an academic exercise for any of us. We're like, okay, what does David mean by this? And then how does this relate to Jesus? But then also, how does this apply to my life? And so as we kind of think about that, I want to point out here that the David here, and again, I think it's prophetic of the Lord Jesus, says, my God, not my Yahweh, not my Lord. And, and this is really important because we've noted as we move through the Psalms that so often we have that L-O-R-D in all caps, and that speaks of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, that relational name of God. And, and so what we have here in this situation is, is the kind of almost the generic term for God, which is L. And it speaks of his transcendent deity. It speaks of his power. It's not his covenant name. Why is that important? Well, it's important because what we have here in the midst of this suffering and difficulty, you have something formal, not familial. And that's how it feels in the midst of your suffering. God feels formal, not familial. It feels like he's afar off. It feels like, you know, you're distant from him in the midst of your, of your suffering. But let me just say this to you. If you've experienced it now, or you've experienced it in the past, you're going to experience it in the future. This is normal. This is normal. 
there are going to be seasons that are more difficult than others. There are going to be seasons in your life when you and I have no clue what God's doing. We just can't put the pieces together. Just, I, just, I don't know what you're doing. And I know that you say that you're my father, but you feel like my faraway boss right now. You feel like a distant ruler making decrees from far. You don't feel near. That's part of how it's going to feel in this fallen world. So if you feel like that today, if you understand that, let me just say to you, it's okay. It's going to be like that sometimes. Notice what he says here. He says in verse one, he says, why have you forsaken me? That word you is emphatic. You're the one that's doing this. You're the one that's forsaking me. That word forsaking means to depart from, to leave behind, to let alone. David feels forsaken here. And you and I are going to have times when we feel forsaken. We feel that God is too severe. He's too hard. That is normal. In fact, this is prophetic of something that the Lord Jesus Christ would say. Let me read it for you. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Jesus is on the cross and it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's from noon to three, it says there was darkness over the whole land. And about the ninth hour, ninth hour about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the first and only time in all of eternity that the second person of the Trinity felt completely separate from the first person of the Trinity. Felt, felt completely alone, removed from him on opposite sides. I can't explain it. I can't understand it. But this is the reality of the situation. And so if, if Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, could feel that, then it seems through our own sin, our own fallenness, we're going to feel that at times. If Jesus felt that as he took all of our sin upon himself, then there are going to be times for us in our fallenness that we're going to feel forsaken. And so we're going to re receive some further light, though, because we kind of think about, well, how could Jesus feel this way? Let me just read for you a verse that I think ties Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 together beautifully. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says this, For he made him, that's God the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, as Jesus suffered on the cross, as he was made sin for us in some way that you and I cannot understand, as he was punished for all of our sins, he was forsaken in that moment, in that time, so that he could pay for our sins. But please understand, his suffering was for a purpose. His suffering he was willing to go to that cross because it was the only way to bring us into relationship with himself. So please understand that God's suffering is never for nothing. There's always a reason behind it. God the Father didn't in some you know, mysterious way forsake his son as his son became sin for us for no reason. It was for the redemption of all mankind, the redemption of anyone who placed their faith in him. So if you're going through a season of feeling forsaken, if you're going through something where it just feels, please know it's, it's, God's not arbitrary. It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, he's not arbitrary. He's doing it for a reason. 
There's always a reason. And just because you and I don't see it, just because you and I don't know how it's going to play out, doesn't mean he doesn't have a reason. He always, always, always does. Now, continuing on in Psalm 22, verse 1, I just want to point out, I'm not going to hit every little thing in here, but I want to point out that word groaning at the end of verse 1. He says, and from the words of my groaning. Groaning is really too light of a translation. This same exact word is translated roaring in verse 13. So this is, this is not kind of like, you know, your, your favorite team loses a game and you groan afterwards. This is roaring. This is, I can't believe this. This is screaming out to the heavens. This is just being so overwhelmed by the situation. That's what it's here. And so this is a reminder for you and for me that an expression of suffering may be loud and intense. That, that when you're a believer, it doesn't mean now all of a sudden when something tragic hits your life that you're like, well, that's kind of sad. No, that there's an intensity of emotion. And you read this, look at the biblical examples all throughout. People weeping and wailing over the loss. People tearing their clothes, throwing dust in their hair, putting on sackcloth because they're overwhelmed. That is the reality of the situation. That, that people, when they saw Jesus die on the cross, they were overwhelmed. They were heartbroken. And, and so for you and I, there are going to be seasons where we're going to be roaring toward God. They're going to be upset and frustrated about a situation. And that's going to be, again, a, a normal part of the process. Verse 2, he says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season and am not silent. Okay, so it's going to be situations, circumstances that we're in that it seems like God's just not listening. That the skies are like bronze. That as we're praying in our room, it's just hitting the ceiling and it's bouncing back down. That's how it's going to feel sometimes. And, and I want to bring you some encouragement that you, if you feel like that sometimes, you're in good company. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 11 for just a moment? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. And this is, this is one of my, uh, my favorite sections of Scripture, of my hundreds of favorite sections of Scripture, or maybe thousands. Uh, but Matthew 11, I think this is an incredibly helpful part because we have a lot of false ideas about what it looks like to be a faithful believer and kind of how we're going to act and how we're going to do things. And, and, and you know what? We're, we, don't always, we don't have it together as fallen people. And so Matthew chapter 11, we see something amazing. We see an individual... And there's a wonderful book about this called The Prisoner in the Third Cell by Gene Edwards. And it's, it's this, this individual here that is very familiar to us, but it's an often overlooked passage. Matthew 11, starting in verse 1, says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? We, we have to have some context to understand just how big this is. John the Baptist had a ministry that was awesome. Calling pre so let me back up. John the Baptist was born to elderly parents 
who were beyond the age of having children. God miraculously intervened. An angel announced the fact that he was going to be conceived. And then John the Baptist, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. It's radical. I've never read anything like this in the rest of Scripture. And yet, this man, who is super faithful to God, who says he must increase and I must decrease, he's the one, you follow him, As he continued his ministry, as his ministry decreased and Jesus' ministry increased, then what happened is John the Baptist, because he was a faithful man, talked to the ruler, Herod, and said, hey, it's not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. And so Herod said, I don't like that. Put him in prison. Well, John's in prison, and now he's kind of having an existential crisis because I believe John was thinking about, well, this shouldn't happen to me. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know why is this situation coming. And maybe he kind of got, and when he was in prison, think, well, it must be the conquering king and what's happening and why am I still in prison and I'm God's prophet. And, and he was struggling. And so please understand what he's saying in verse three is he's saying to Jesus, are you really the Messiah or did I get it wrong? Are you really the Christ, the coming one? Or have I misinterpreted things? And so we're still waiting on somebody else. That's the crisis of faith John's having. A a man who has served God faithfully, called by God, prophesied for God, he's struggling. So if John the Baptist is struggling, do you think that you're not going to struggle sometimes? You're not going to wonder about what God's doing? But but I love this, what what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't blow him out of the water. You know why? Because Jesus knows people. Jesus knows that we're weak. Jesus knows that we can't do it. And so Jesus sends back the best possible answer to John because he's Jesus and that's what he does. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why would Jesus say that? Because John was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. John was an expert in the prophecies of the Messiah. So Jesus says, hey, go and tell John what you've seen, that all these Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah are being fulfilled. See, see, it wasn't like, John, you need to do this or that. No, he's just, John will know what this means. John will understand. And then there's a gentle exhortation to John, verse 6, that's a beatitude. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Just a gentle exhortation to John. Hey, John, there, if, if you can stick it out there in prison, if you can stay, there's, there's a blessing associated with that. If you keep on in the midst of that hardship, if you keep holding on to me, if you endure through the suffering, if you keep on following me, John, there's a blessing for you, bud. And they departed. And Jesus began uh, to say to the multitude concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. And this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face and will prepare a way before you. And assuredly, I say to you, and this is, this is groundbreaking stuff Jesus says in verse 11, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist, 
but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, oh, one more, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of, of heaven, notice, suffers violence and the violent take it by force. So a lot to unpack. We can't unpack all these things. This is what I want to point out for just a second. Jesus gives a message to John, gently encourages, exhorts John that there's a blessing to continue on through suffering. And then he says to the crowd, John the Baptist is still my guy. In the midst of John's struggling, in the midst of his, you know, wondering, in the midst of his failing, Jesus says, he's still my guy. And in fact, he says something about John the Baptist that's often overlooked there in verse 11. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the great of all the people of the old covenant. Every single person, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah. Notice what he says. He says, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So if the greatest person under the old covenant can be a guy who struggles, who wonders, who gets confused in the midst of suffering, who doesn't know how to handle it, then, then there's, there's some grace for you and I. Some grace for you and I as we struggle and as we kind of, you know, get through these tra- challenging times as our, in our pilgrim's progress. But then there's a great blessing for you and I too because it says he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He who is least in the new covenant, it's part of that, has an even greater place. Why? Because think about it, we get the, the Holy Spirit to fulfill us and empower us in a different way than even John experienced. We get to experience all the truths of the new covenant. We know the finished work. John didn't get to see that in his earthly life, but you and I have. So incredible, incredible encouragement from the life of John the Baptist. Let's turn back to Psalm 22, if we have any hope of getting through this psalm. Verse 3 <coughs> But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. This word holy, I just want to focus on for just a moment. It means set apart. It means above it all. God is set apart. God is above it all in the midst of it. And so we look at suffering and say suffering is bad. But God, since he's set apart, he's above it all. He sees that suffering can be used for the good. And, but I also love this, this set-apartness because I kind of think about you know, these cheesy action movies, which I unapologetically love. And they're these, the hero walking through, and there's bullets flying, and there's things coming up, and there's all kinds of craziness. And the hero just walks through like he doesn't have a care in the world. And I think about the Lord in the midst of all, our, kind of all the, the dangerous situations of this world and all the unsettledness. God is holy and God set apart. Vladimir Putin cannot invade heaven. Hey, he can't do those things. So we have to remind ourselves because sometimes in the midst of our suffering, though God is with us in our suffering, he's also above it. He can't be defeated by our suffering. He can't be taken down by the bombs and the bullets and the cancer of this world. So we want to remind ourselves of that. We want to remind ourselves that he's enthroned in the praise of Israel, that God is rightly lifted up when, we are, when he's praised by our people. And so what we remind ourselves to is that in the midst of our suffering, we still want to praise him. In the midst of our suffering, and there's a, you know, a song called, I believe it's called Weapon, you know, about worship will be my weapon. 
that I'm going to use that worship. And, and so we want to give him that exalted place that when, if we want to say, I want to rightly see God, I want to lift him to the place that he belongs, well, then I need to praise him. I need to worship him. And here's what happens. When you and I praise God, you know, and through song, it aligns our hearts with the truth. Suffering is a liar. You know, in the midst of our suffering, we're deceived and we don't see things clearly. In the midst of our pain, we, we can't make sense of things. But when we worship God, even through the pain, it aligns our hearts with truth. And that's what we need. We need that truth. Verses four and five, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. And they cried to you and they and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. And so you can go back and you're really starting with the Exodus. I think that's what's being referred to here. You know, all the plagues in Egypt and how God protected the Israelites and, and he put punishment upon the Egyptians. And so you go through that. You go through the Old Testament all the way from the Exodus to the time of David. And over and over again, you see how the Israelites received deliverance how God delivered them over and over again. And so as believers, we know that God can and does deliver. But let me just say this. He doesn't always deliver in the same way. So I want to give you two ways that God delivers, and you can kind of think about these and meditate upon these. God delivers from and God delivers through. God delivers from and God delivers through. I want to give you another New Testament example of this. Would you turn to Acts chapter 2 for, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 12 for just a moment. Acts chapter 12. I realize that this study has become the greatest hits of different passages I love to go to. Um, I do not apologize. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. I want to look at this stark example of delivering from or delivering through. Acts chapter 12 says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So this is one of the inner circle. You know, Peter, James, and John went everywhere. Some say the remedial circle, but uh, they were that special circle that went. And so we have James, the first of the apostles, to be martyred. So he's killed by Herod. And it says, and because he, that's Herod, saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. Now, I just, I just wanted to point out just a second. Peter was sleeping. He's going to be executed the next day, or so he thinks. And he's like, you know what? I might as well take a nap. You know, I might as well crash out. It's fine. He says, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And I love this non-gentle angel. And he struck Peter on the side. Just smacked Peter. And raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him. Did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had gone past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate, which leads to the city, which opened to them on their own accord. 
So the first automatic gate in history is pretty awesome. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And notice, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, here it is, and has delivered me from the expectation of the Jewish people. Now, I bring up this passage, and I hope you think about it, meditate on it, but what we have here is James is executed and Peter set free. And we say, well, you know, God delivered Peter, but he didn't deliver James. And let me just stop you right there. That's not true. God delivered Peter from death, but he delivered James through death. So that's what we have to remember because we kind of have this playbook and say, if God's going to deliver me, he's going to rescue me. He's going to heal me from this thing. But God would say to us, I believe, no, no, this is going to be the way I'm going to deliver you through. I'm going to deliver you through death and you're coming home to be with me. Because I always look at James and Peter and I love this passage. I love to think about it and all the details and the fun that's in there. There's exciting things and humor. But I always think about this. Who really had it better? I would argue James had it better. James got to go and be in the presence of the Lord. Peter still had a lot of rough times ahead of him, a lot of suffering to do. But Peter still needed to write things like First and Second Peter for us. Peter had work still to be done on planet Earth. So please understand that your deliverance is coming. It may be deliverance from for now, but eventually it's going to be deliverance through. The day is coming. When God is going to, you as a born-again believer, mark my words, he is going to deliver you through death. Death is going to be the Uber that takes you home. And the cool thing is, Jesus has already paid the fare. <laughs> you don't have to pay it. It's coming for you. And so in nearly identical situations, Peter was delivered from death and James was delivered through death. Now, we still got a little bit of time. Uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 for now. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Well, I'm going to have to run through this quickly. But we're going to look at verses 18 through 39. Because how could we not when at this subject... Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, We are killed all day long, and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. I probably should quit there, but we still have verses to cover. So let's get back to Psalm chapter 3. We'll pick up the pace. Verses 6 through 8. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So this prophetic of the Messiah, what he was going to experience at the cross, you can read about this. We don't have time to turn there. Matthew 27 verses 35 through 44. We see how this is perfectly fulfilled as Jesus Christ is on the cross and his enemies mock him. And this is a reminder that just as unbelievers mock Jesus and his suffering, so unbelievers will mock Christians in their sufferings. Please just prepare for that. Be prepared For you, in the midst of your suffering as a believer, for people to say to you, well, huh, if you really loved God more, this wouldn't have happened to you. Or if your God were real, well, why are these things taking place? So be prepared for that. Jesus Christ was mocked by unbelievers in the midst of his suffering. So you are going to be mocked by unbelievers in the midst of your suffering. Now, continuing on, verses 9 through 11. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. And so I love this special relationship that we read of here between the Lord Jesus and God, the father, prophetically speaking, that the Lord Jesus was set aside to his father's business. Always. I love the only story we have of Jesus as a child was he's 12 years old in the temple And, you know, Joseph and Mary head back to Nazareth and they're like, do you have Jesus? I thought it was with you. We lost God's son. Uh, And so they go back in the temple. And what is Jesus doing there? He's talking with the the elders there that can't believe him. And he, and he says to his parents, did you not know I need to be about my father's business? And that's what he was always about. But also we look at verses 9 through 11. And I also want you to take them to heart for you because Psalm 139 tells you and tells me that we are a special creation of God. Please understand that, that every human being has value because they're all made in God's image. And every, being, every human being has value because God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we we're at sinners, Christ died for us. 
So if you ever wonder if people have value, remember, well, people have value because they're created in God's image and because the father sent his son to die for them. Now, verses 12 and 13, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. And so this is, again, the powerful imagery of these animals that are bent on destruction and these enemies of the Lord Jesus around the cross, how they surrounded him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. So again, this speaking of the Lord Jesus, and I know that I've kind of declined to talk about how this relates to David. I'm just going to focus on Jesus. Um, this, this imagery here, this poured out like water, it can speak of a loss of strength, or it can also speak about how Jesus was bleeding out. That is how he's bleeding out. His, his blood was poured out like water. His bones were out of joint. That speaks of the result of the crucifixion. As his body was there on the cross, then it would have brought his bones out of joint. And then when it says his heart was like wax, it melted within him. There are some people who think that when Jesus gave up his spirit, actually his heart ruptured. That, that quite literally that he would have died of a broken heart. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. The Lord Jesus, uh, there was an incredible uh, you know, thirst associated with the crucifixion because of loss of the bodily fluids. And so the Lord Jesus cried out you know, on the cross, I thirst, it's fulfillment of this here. Verse um, 16 now says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed around me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Here's a clear prophecy of the crucifixion. And what's so interesting is some manuscripts don't have this pierced part, but if you kind of do all the study, it seems that, that after Jesus died on the cross, some of those manuscripts were changed because it pointed too much to Jesus. Because what we have here and what's so intriguing about this piercing of hands and feet, this was written by David before crucifixion was invented. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, later picked up by the Romans. David writes this before crucifixion had been invented. So it's a clear prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. This counting of all my bones, commentators think it may refer to the fact that Jesus didn't have any broken bones on the cross because tied into the Passover lamb, how the Passover lamb was to have no broken bones. And it's, it's, it's horrifying to think about, but oftentimes, you know, the crucifixion victims would be naked upon the cross. And so I think counting all my bones, it also speaks of just how he's, he's open and exposed there upon the cross. And notice we says, they look at, they look and stare at me. So just Jesus is a spectacle. And again, this is a reminder to you and I that our suffering may be in public. That the suffering that we may endure, it may not be private. It may not be hidden away. It may be out there in the open because God is using it for his purposes. And it may be horrible for us. We don't want these people to stare at us, to look at us in the midst of our difficulty and hardship and brokenness. But it may be in that moment that God reveals himself through us. And so it needs to be. I mean, as, as amazing as the Lord Jesus Christ is and anything and everything that he did, the cross is a center. You know, Jesus without the cross leaves us with a teacher who didn't save us. And so the pinnacle of human suffering, of, of God's suffering, is there at the cross and is, he's open for all to see. So it may be that you and I 
the pinnacle of what he may do in our life may be the point of our most open and difficult suffering. This is the reality of, the, of how God works. Verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So another fulfilled prophecy, we're familiar with that, how the soldiers cast lots to take Jesus's clothing. Verses 19 through 21, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. So there's this cry for deliverance. And then I love it. Notice that very last part of verse 21. It's a little bit separate in my Bible. It says, you have answered me. I love that. You have answered me. For me, what I understand this to be with, uh, you know, with David is he got delivered from whatever situation he's in. But as I think about it in terms of the Lord Jesus, I believe that this you have answered me is when Jesus says it is finished. When Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus is suffering as unfathomable as it was to, or it is to us. We just can't understand it, can't put the pieces together. It was for a while. He paid and then he was answered. The Lord Jesus, please understand, was not delivered from death, but he was delivered through death. And unless you and I are raptured, this will be our story as well. Those are our two choices. Now we look and and we read what's going on in the world and we say, all right, it's looking good. You know, I, I, I was talking to Brandy yesterday when we were at a volleyball tournament. I said, I'm a little disappointed I haven't been raptured yet. <laughs> it's, it's not here yet. The rapture hasn't gotten here yet. But you know what? Those are our two choices. We're either going to be raptured or we're going to be delivered through death. And the Lord Jesus was delivered through death unto his father. Verse 22. I would declare. So, so here's where everything turns after verse, the end of verse 21. It's, it's good news now. It's the other side of things. It's the after suffering. It says, I would declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Um, you can read Hebrews, 12, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, shows us that this is a prophetic declaration speaking of the Lord Jesus after, after suffering. Verse 23, you will fear the Lord. I'm sorry, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. So again, this more, a more call to, to praising the Lord, to giving him the glory he deserves. Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. And so what we have here is, is David really clearly writing about the Messiah, uh, is, you know, basically that God the Father hasn't despised his afflicted Messiah, uh, that he, he didn't hide his face from him, that he cried out to him, and that he heard him. So beautiful things. And, and this is a reminder for us as we look at 24, as we look at the, you know, the, the tragedy of the cross, the glory and the tragedy that it is all in one, and we think about how God delivered him through that, it's a reminder to you and I that death is not the end. Death, the, the, Jesus' death was not the end of his ministry. <laughs> it, it's it, that we, everything that we have, that we are, that we're going to have in eternity future is because of that. So death is not the end. Please remind yourself of that. I, I was finishing up the last battle. I encourage you, if you haven't read the Narnia series or it's been a while, don't just say, well, those are kids' books. Well, they are kids' books, but they're not only kids' books. I'd encourage you to read through them. And I was finishing up the last battle on Friday and I came across this line. I want to share it with you. 
this one individual who was dying was, was sending a message to his king to kind of fight to the end. And he said this to him, remember that all worlds draw to an end and that a noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. I love that. Remember that all worlds draw to an end and that a noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. You and I, as we faithfully serve the Lord through suffering, through difficulty, through hardship, we're buying a noble death. We're, we're, we're dying daily. We're, we're, we're saying, Lord, this life belongs to you. I want it to be a light to others. And no matter my socioeconomic bracket, I can buy a noble death. Verses 25 and 26, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So the one thing I just want to bring out from this is that there in verse 26, where it says, those who seek him will praise the Lord. Seeking the Lord leads to praising the Lord. So if you and I aren't praising the Lord right now, if we don't, we say, I, I don't have a reason to praise him. Have you seen the world, this kind of stuff or what's going on in my life? Here's the deal. You can, you can remedy that. If you and I want to be people who praise the Lord, seek him, seek him, seek him through his word, Th seek him through prayer, seek to hear him through the Chronicles of Narnia, seek to do that. And what happens is inevitably, if you seek him, you will praise him. So if you and I are not praising him, it's because we're not seeking him. Verses 27 and 28, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. I think this is a clear prophecy of the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ, where Jesus is going to return at the end of the tribulation period, set up his millennial kingdom, and all the peoples of the world will worship him. It's going to how, how human government should be for the, the first time ever in human history. It's going to be set up and I am looking forward to it. Verse 29 all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. It, essentially, verse 29 is kind of three different classes of people, but the, the, the big picture is this. Every person will worship the Lord. Every person, no matter kind of where you're from, what group, you're going to worship the Lord. And we know that's true from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every single person is going to worship the Lord on a coming day. They're either going to worship him you know, willingly or unwillingly. You know, they're either going to worship him because they love him and have a relationship with him, or they're going to worship him because they must bow down before him at the great white throne judgment. And so this day is coming. The day is coming where every knee will bow. But the good news for you and I is we don't have to wait for that day. Every day and everything we do can be a day of bowing down and worship before him. Every act Every word that we share, every book that we read, every, everything that we do, how we drive our cars can be worship and bowing down before the Lord. Final verses. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. People will worship the Lord forever and evermore. I'll just close with this, these last thoughts. As believers, we are called to suffer. That, that is the clear teaching of scripture. 
But the good news is, equally clear, is it's only for a while. That suffering is only for a while. For the believer, no suffering is permanent. We suffer for our Savior now, but the day is coming when you and I will reign with Him forever. As Psalm 30, verse 5 tells us, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning.